0: Well, good morning. What a wonderful way to spend a Saturday. It's great to be with you here. This is my first trip to Flint, so what a joy it is to travel up here. I almost didn't make it to the conference because the trees along I-75 were so beautiful. I had to consider, do I stop and just look at these trees all day, or do I come here? And I decided to come here because Pete's a good friend. uh, But no, it really is great to be uh, here with you. Knox Presbyterian Church, where I serve as the associate pastor, sends her greetings. Our senior pastor, Doug Graham... Uh, was uh, faced this week with a longtime member of ours, uh, went to be with the Lord, and there was a funeral this morning in our church. And so this week, Doug realized he wasn't going to be able to come here. And when Pete found that out, I know he just exhausted all of his options trying to find someone to fill Doug's spot, called everyone he knew, and then he tried again and again and again. And, and I guess he finally ended up calling me, and here I am. And uh, it really is a joy. Uh, to be with you and to talk about this wonderful subject. What a wonderful day to start our Saturday to talk about total depravity, which sets the stage for these doctrines to come later in the day. But before we begin, let's gather our hearts together in prayer once more. Please join me as we pray. Our gracious God, we come to you now, and we are so thankful that you are a God who is not hidden from us, why you created us and who we are and what it is you've done throughout history, mainly the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, who was crucified upon a cross to die for our sins, to rescue us from the guilt and the power of our sin. And our gracious God, we gather before you now, humbled and broken before you, as we consider this weighty subject. We ask that you will teach our hearts these wonderful truths from your word, that we might worship you with more fervor and serve you with more passion and be devoted to you like we've never been devoted before. We ask, O Lord, that you'll renew our hearts this day and teach us now. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the reformed vision of soteriology, and that is the doctrine of salvation, or as it's so wonderfully summed up and. Tulip, as Pete just explained, these five doctrines that we're going to consider today, this soteriology is nonsense and needless if it's divorced from a right understanding of humanity's fallen state. Thus, we begin with the T total depravity. I suppose from one angle this may be seen as as a dark and depressing thing to begin with total depravity on this Saturday morning and perhaps the reason behind so many fleeing from Reformed theology. But don't be fooled. For the foundation upon which... A reformed soteriology is found. It is not a philosophical foundation in which we've, we've, we've searched our own minds to come up with these ideas about who we are as humanity. It's not built upon a philosophical foundation, but upon a biblical foundation. We do not discover who we are and what God intends for us as his people by sitting in a locked room all by ourselves, just thinking all alone, About who we are. We don't make these things up. But rather we discover who we are. By looking to God's word. And a reformed soteriology. Recognizes that the biblical narrative of God's saving work. In history is one that takes us to the highest joys. Of everlasting delight. But to get there. We must dip down. Way down. Into the troubled waters of humanity's fall into sin by way of our covenant head, Adam. And we must be ready to face the dire consequences of his sin and ours. And to get to these highest joys that Scripture speaks of, we must strike this minor key of our depravity if we're ever going to hear the moving and joy filled music of the gospel. And so allow me. To strike the blue note, the minor key to start our morning by zeroing in on the reality of our corrupt and sinful natures with the hope that by the end of this day, our sorrow will be turned to joy as we consider the rest of the story of God's merciful and saving work. As we begin with this doctrine, I appreciate this quote that's on your outlines In the wonderful little book entitled The Five Points of Calvinism, these five doctrines are not presented in the Bible as separate and independent units of truth. On the contrary, they are woven into one harmonious, interrelated system in which God's plan for recovering lost sinners is marvelously displayed. To judge these doctrines individually without relating each to the other would be like attempting to evaluate one of Rembrandt's paintings by looking at only one color at a time and never viewing the work as a whole. So as we consider this doctrine of total depravity, we don't look at it in an isolated manner. But we wait with excitement to hear about the things to come later this day. But right now, we consider total depravity. And let's take a step back. What I'd like to do is first begin with an understanding of what God intended when he created us, his image bearers. And then we'll consider the fall, our fall As covenant breakers. And consider those implications in the doctrine of total depravity. So we begin at creation. We read in Genesis, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I find it a bit sad that Calvin's high view of humanity as God's image bears, is often overlooked. It's assumed that Calvin's theology was was, was simply a pessimistic theology, and that he begins and ends with human depravity and inability, and that's the only waters that he ever swims in. But that's just not true. His anthropology, that is his doctrine of of man, and his, his, his soteriology, his doctrine of salvation, begin And in where scripture begins and ends on this subject, or shall I say begins on this subject, that is the Garden of Eden. Calvin writes in his Institutes about God's creation of man. He says that we shall learn that in this creation, in the forming of man and in adorning him with such goodly beauty and with, with such great and numerous gifts, he put him forth as the most excellent example of God's works. Man proceeded, Calvin writes, he proceeded spotless from God's hand. Among all God's works, here is the noblest and most remarkable example of God's justice, wisdom, and goodness. Calvin had a high view of God's creation of humankind as His image-bearers, that God intended for us to be His loyal subjects, confirmed in righteousness, enjoying fellowship with God forever and ever, reflecting His glory in all that we are and do. But we find very early on in that creation account that we're not only image-bearers, but we are covenant-breakers. You see, when God declared his creation to be good, and he did that often, didn't he, in Genesis? He declared his creation to be good. The pinnacle of his creation is seen on the sixth day when he created man and woman in his image. You see, this is an important point. What made God's creation good was not simply the essence of those things that were created. It wasn't simply the physical nature of the sun that made the sun good, though the sun in and it, of itself was good. The sea in and of itself, it, it, it was good, but it wasn't simply the physical nature. It wasn't simply the essence of these things that made them good. Rather, what, God, what made God's creation good. You see, the goodness of creation is to be found in creation's response to to its creator. That is, God's creation, all that he made, replied to him in obedience and fulfilled its design. The stars lit up the sky according to the purpose of their creator. The stars fulfilled their design, and this was good. And Adam, too, had the high honor of fulfilling his created design. And a choice was before Adam reject the creator and his purposes. Or bow down before him in humble obedience. In this sense, you might say Adam lived between two trees. His entire destiny was to take place between these two trees we find in the garden. One would lead to death and the other to life. Which would it be? The tree of life held out the promise of life and covenantal blessing. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would bring death and covenantal curses. And we know how the story goes, don't we? God commanded. and He promised life. Adam rejected. And he chose death. And the doctrine of original sin is the doctrine that describes the result of that first sin. Original sin doesn't necessarily refer to simply Adam's first sin. It refers to the result of that sin. And the result for Adam's sin is so wonderfully summarized here. And the Westminster Confession, but the the result of Adam's sin upon human nature is what we're considering this morning, that doctrine of total depravity. Listen to how the Westminster Divines put it. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, And the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. Dear friends, we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, it's the reverse. We sin. Because we are sinners by nature. For as Jesus taught, you'll remember in Mark chapter 7, For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, envy, arrogance, and folly, and all these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. In writing about this doctrine, Michael Horton writes that no doctrine is more crucial to our anthropology and our soteriology. And yet, no doctrine has been more relentlessly criticized ever since it was articulated. Now, why is this? As we consider total depravity this morning. Why so criticized? Why so resisted? I think I have an answer. Because we hate the idea that we are evil to the core. Now. We can swallow this. No one is perfect. No one is perfect. Oh, yes, we love to say that. In the church and outside of the church, we can claim that all day long. No one is perfect. To err is human. Yes, 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 yes. We can sing that song all day long. We love it. Yes, to err is human. We all make mistakes. Yes, we love to say that, don't we? We all make mistakes. But how about this? You are radically corrupt. You are evil to the core. Spiritually dead. What's the response to that? Do we like to sing that song? How dare you say such a thing? How could you say such a thing? It cannot be. I think because of this widespread resistance to this idea that we are evil to the core as a result of Adam's sin and ours, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in critiquing this mentality in the West, described this widespread mentality as being Protestantism without the Reformation. I think that's insightful. And as we consider this fall and what it means for our nature in being totally depraved, I think Romans 3 sums this up so wonderfully. When in Romans 3 we read, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Total depravity. Scripture affirms again and again, from beginning to end, the depravity of the entire human race. The doctrine of total depravity speaks to the reality. If you're wondering, how would you sum up total depravity? Total depravity speaks to the reality that you and I are corrupt in the totality of our being. That's what we mean by total depravity. In the totality of your being, we are corrupt. When Calvinists speak of man as being totally depraved, they're speaking of the fact that man's nature is corrupt and sinful throughout and extends to every part of his body and soul. As we've already seen, as we've we've just seen by looking at the creation account, man was originally created without blemish and did not enter the world in in a depraved condition. God created Adam with no evil whatsoever in his nature and his will was not enslaved to sin. However, as a result of his disobedience and fall, he plunged himself and the entire human race, all his children, into spiritual ruin. And I love how R.C. Sproul refers to the fact that he prefers the title of radical corruption over total depravity because our problem with sin is that it's rooted in the core of our being and it permeates our hearts but even R.C. Sproul recognizes that Rulip isn't quite as catchy as Tulip so we'll stick with total depravity this morning as opposed to radical corruption. Now what I'd like to do in our final moments I would like to look at the doctrine of total depravity from a few different angles and let's consider the implications for us for the church and for the world. So let's begin by breaking down Romans 3. And we first see in Romans 3, we read that there is no one who does good. And I'd like to talk about the pervasiveness, first of all, of this depravity and corruption. No one who does good. Surely this is hyperbole, right? I mean, come on. No one who does good. How can the apostle make this claim? I mean, we see a countless number of good works performed in every corner of society by all kinds of people all over the world. I mean, we see breathtaking ingenuity and creativity right here in Flint and in the Detroit area. I mean, look at all of the wonderful ways that we've served humanity in the car industry and all the good things that have come out of even this place. All the wonderful human imagination and hard work that can be done. We see laudable acts of generosity and thoughtfulness. I was at my first NFL game last week and I saw these big burly men wearing pink. Hey, for a good cause. And it really is a good cause. For cancer. We see that all over the place. How can the apostles say that no one does good? We see neighbors helping neighbors and on and on and on. However, the doctrine of total depravity sobers us to the the pervasive nature of our sin and the realization that God declares works to be good according to the holy standards of his righteousness. It's true. We're able to perform deeds that according to our measurements, they are generous and good. But before God, even these best works of ours are so twisted and shot through with evil ambition and selfish intent that they are filthy in God's eyes. You say, how can you use a word like filthy to describe the good works I do for my neighbor and that my neighbor does for me? And I say, I didn't come up with it. Isaiah did. All of us, Isaiah says, have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Did Isaiah say all of our evil acts? He said evil, right? Are like filthy rags. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. We are morally and spiritually corrupt from the time of our youth, this doctrine of total depravity declares And David declares it as well, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And again, in Psalm 58, even from birth the wicked go astray, from the womb they speak lies. I would love to tell you this morning about my three beautiful children. And I have two girls, and if you were to meet them and spend some time with them, you would really think that we had the... First sinless children born in this world. They're beautiful. They are darling. Yes, uh, last night before my daughter went to bed, she said, Daddy, I love you more than a baby polar bear loves her daddy. Isn't that sweet? They're sweethearts. I, 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 if I had the time, though, I'd tell you about all the lies they tell And I catch them. And I tell you about all the ways when I'm not looking. They're mean to each other. From their mother's womb. This was their nature. But I don't have time to tell you about all that this morning. Our hearts are evil and this corruption holds sway over our whole being. Total depravity says. Listen again to the words of Genesis. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Total depravity. Every part of our being, our mind, our will, our heart, our affections, our emotions, our conscience, our motivations, our body has been affected by sin. And this is what is meant by the doctrine of total depravity. Every part of our being. Just as a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, so our natures have been corrupted and nothing truly good can proceed from our corrupt human nature. Did you hear? Nothing truly good. In fact, human beings are now cursed with the condition of not being able not to sin. Non passe non pecare. Our inclination is toward evil. And toward hatred of God and our neighbor. I love the way R.C. puts it again. Sin is not a peripheral thing, he says. It's not a peripheral thing. A slight blemish that mars an otherwise perfect specimen. Sin is radical in the sense that it touches the root of our lives. And amazingly, as bad and awful as we are, we're not as bad as we could be. Total depravity is not utter depravity. Utter depravity would mean that we're all as sinful as we possibly could be. And we know that's not the case. No matter how much each of us has sinned, we're, we're able to think of worse sins that we could have committed. As Sproul observes, even Adolf Hitler refrained from murdering his mother. Now how can this be? If this is who we are, why don't we act this way all the time? Why aren't we as bad as we could be if what I'm saying is true? Why don't we give full expression to our sinfulness? And the answer is simple. It's because of God's common grace. We are still image bearers with a conscience, and we possess a measure of wisdom and fear of painful consequences. We even know, sinful as we are, that sometimes crime doesn't pay. So there's times where we don't steal that $100 because we know it will be worse off for us. And Even our not stealing at times is motivated by the intent of caring for ourselves. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We see God's civil law at work. That is God's law in the world that is to restrain sin and allow us to not give full vent to our sinfulness. It's by God's grace alone that we don't give full vent to our sinfulness. Jonathan Edwards referred to this as enlightened self-interest. That is we, our motivation to perform external deeds and, uh, of righteousness and to suppress our evil impulses we're sometimes motivated to do these things because we will be better served. Even though human beings are depraved, we at least know there are times when violating the law will cause us to be worse off. We might just get a raise or gain a friend by doing good works. And now, this understanding of this radical corruption of our natures causes some to go different extremes. See, some, would, some deny this and say it cannot be that we are this corrupt. And others might go to the opposite extreme and say, yes, we are this corrupt. In fact, so much so that we're not even human. Total depravity speaks to these things. Total depravity, I think, teaches us something of our being glorious ruins. Oh, how glorious God's creation was and His image bears. And the doctrine of total depravity, it, it speaks to those, on the one hand, who deny the radical and pervasive corruption of the totality of our being. And it does this by pointing To the teaching of scripture that though we were created to be image bearers of God, we all like sheep have turned our own way. And in so doing, we have so twisted and marred the image of God within us that it can hardly be seen. So that the psalmist can even write in Psalm 73, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Our sin can be so beastly. Yes, that's true. However, total depravity speaks also to those who claim that we are simply and only beasts and not human beings, image bearers of God, that we have forfeited our humanity. Total depravity rejects these notions. For we as fallen humanity are twisted and marred, and you can add any nasty description that pleases you and it should fit just fine. That is very true of us. But we are still human. Beings made in God's likeness. God does not make trash. And he does not trash what he has made. God created and designed us to reflect his glory. And though our human nature has been corrupted and ruined, it has not been destroyed. That's very important. My father was a prison warden for many years. We lived on the prison grounds. I would often go in the prison with my dad. And oh, How that community, you might be tempted to think at times that it was a community of of beasts if you considered the things that they'd done and the things that they do there. But even there, we have God's image bearers, human beings. One man in particular that was at one of my dad's prisons on death row was a man by the name of John Wayne Gacy. Surely, John Wayne Gacy forfeited his humanity by all that he does, surely he reflects God's image no more. And total depravity even rejects this, for even he, marred and twisted as it is, is an image bearer of God. The doctrine of total depravity also speaks to the universal nature Of this corruption. There is no one righteous. Romans 3 says, not even one. All have turned away. Do you see the universal tone? Total depravity is a characteristic of human nature. And as Herman Bavink says, therefore, peculiar to all creatures possessing this nature. Paul writes in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. All. Everyone. Universal. Now some might be saying, Pastor, <clears throat> I know it's early on Saturday morning, you meant to say most people, right? Most most people are not righteous. That's, that's more like it. Well, you could come up with a long list of spiritual giants whom you might think are righteous. Christians who have been wonderful contributors to the kingdom, to the church. But no one on that list would compare to the Apostle Paul. And listen to what Paul says of himself in Romans 7. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Okay, fair enough, you might say. But but but, but what about the most innocent and beautiful and blameless among us? Our babies. And even more, of those precious ones in the womb. Uh, all that we've said so far surely doesn't apply to them, right? And I'm simply helping us folks to get a, a, a wide view of how serious this thing is of human depravity. And so that's why I bring this, this subject up. But it is true that all that we've said of human corruption and depravity is true of these precious ones as well. Even babies in the womb cannot stand on their own righteousness. They are utterly dependent upon the mercies of God according to his eternal counsel. And this is good news because God is a merciful and wise God, more just than you or I. It's a good thing to be left in the hands of his mercy. But we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. we next see something of the total inability. The total inability to do any spiritual good that this doctrine of total depravity teaches us. There's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. They have together become worthless. Due to our being pervasively corrupt, we are unable, dear friends, we are unable to live, think, or feel in a way that is distinct from our corruption. Just as we have total, total inability to physically leap over the moon, so we have total inability to spiritually choose things that are pleasing to God. And that includes choosing God himself. Both Jeremiah and Jesus put it well. Jeremiah says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You want to know how easy it is to do spiritual good left to yourself and to choose the things of God? It's as easy as a leopard changing its spots, Jeremiah says. And Jesus so aptly says that a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. The Bible tells us to choose that which is pleasing to God. Is it therefore wrong to speak of our being unable to choose? Isn't this contradictory? Don't we have free will? Well, yes and no. We are free to choose, but not free to choose spiritual good over evil. I mentioned my dad earlier being a prison warden. Do those inmates have free will? Well, yes. They have the will to choose whether or not to sleep on their stomach or their back that night. They have free will to decide which brand of cigarettes they might smoke they have free will to decide whether or not they're going to play basketball that morning or not but they don't have free will to leave the prison in which they are contained they might want to but they cannot and it's here that this metaphor even breaks down for what the bible teaches is we are so bound and spiritually dead that we don't even want To do what is good and right. That's how bound we are. And that is the kind of slaves we are to sin. We do not have the ability to change our natures or to prepare ourselves for salvation. We are spiritually dead and in bondage to our sinful nature. And this was the curse. In the garden, when you eat of it, you will surely die. And we know that extends beyond physical death to spiritual death. So that Paul can write in Ephesians, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And there's many illustrations out there to try to bring people to the faith. And I won't get into all those because perhaps they'll be dealt with later. But oftentimes we're viewed as a person out at sea, almost drowning, reaching for that life jacket. Paul says no. You're not just drowning. You're dead at the bottom of the sea. The sharks have eaten you. You're dead. In your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, he says, in bondage. Herman Bovink writes once again, Humans have not, as a result of sin, lost their will and their increated freedom. The will, in virtue of its nature rules out all coercion, and can only will freely. What humans have lost is the free inclination of the will toward the good. They now no longer want to do good. They now voluntarily, by a natural inclination, do evil. The inclination, the direction of the will has changed. As Augustine said, the will in us is always free, but it is not always good. In this sense, the incapacity for good is not physical, but ethical in nature it is a kind of impotence of the will now because of this corruption that is radical because of this utter inability on our part to do anything that is good we are often self-deluded and self-deceived into thinking that what we do is is good And we are self-deluded into thinking that good is evil and evil is good. Let me just give you one example of this. In Romans 3, we read, There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Now, how can the doctrine of total depravity be true when so many in our culture are extremely spiritual and searching for God? I mean, look at our bookstores. They're filled with books on spirituality. And we hear from Christians all the time of family members and friends who are searching for God. So how? How can we say no one seeks God? Well, the truth, according to Scripture, is that even when we think we're seeking God, we are really running from the true God. Though our bookstores are filled with self-help and spirituality, they reflect, they actually ref- all of that spirituality actually reflects our attempt to escape the lordship of the true God in exchange for other gods. We do not seek the true God. Rather, we use him. We use him. We want his benefits. Oh, we want security. We want peace of mind. We want relief from guilt. We want love and meaning and purpose and life. We want those things, but we do not want the true God. As Michael Horton again writes, spirituality, no less than atheism, suppresses the specificity of the God revealed in scripture. That's powerful. He's saying that all the spirituality we we see that does not zero in on Christ and the living God suppresses the truth just as much as atheism. Do you remember Paul's trip to Athens in the book of Acts? Remember Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Very religious. They didn't know Christ. So I I, I ask, I pose this question. If if, if If the world is very spiritual now and everyone is seeking, is God hiding? If so many are seeking after God, why can't he be found? Because in reality, people are not really seeking. And God is not really hiding. If you'll think back to Eden, who was it who hid? And who was it who searched? It was Adam in his shame who ran and he hid. And it was God who came looking. And this remains unchanged in the 21st century, for we as Adam's children are still running from the living God, self-deluded into thinking. Self-deluded into thinking that we're really after the true God. The last angle we'll consider is the fact that all of these things leave us guilty before God, like the rest, Paul writes to the Ephesian church. We were by nature objects of wrath. I love this quote again from Bavink. Because of man's corruption and inability to please God, he is deserving of punishment. For his sin is not only real evil, morally wrong, in the violation of God's law, and therefore undesirable, odious, ugly, disgusting, filthy, and ought not to be, it is also the contradiction of God's perfection. Cannot be met. Cannot be met with his disapproval and wrath, and damnable in the strongest sense of the word because it dishonors God. God must react with holy indignation. He cannot do otherwise. And John Murray says this God cannot deny himself. To be complacent towards that which is the contradiction of his own holiness would be a denial of himself, so that wrath against sin is the correlate of his holiness. And this is just saying that the justice of God demands that sin receive its retribution. The question is not at all how can God, being what he is, send men to hell. The question is how can God, being what he is, save them from hell? And now let me end with a short thought on how we might apply this doctrine. The first is be careful. Be careful to construct your views of God and of man and who we are and our sinful nature. Not according to the philosophies of this world, and they are many, but according to Scripture. There are so many philosophies that we eat, sleep, and breathe that shape our view of who we are. And these things radically shape everything. They shape our view of everything, including salvation. Why is it that so many have a synergistic idea of salvation? That is that we contribute together with God. In fact, we contribute in very decisive ways to God's saving work in our lives. How is it that so many have this view? It's because they haven't built their doctrine upon the foundation of Scripture. We need to be careful to do this. There are many... Who hate this doctrine? Many prominent evangelicals, even, who say this doctrine that I've just taught to you this morning is a cruel thing to teach the church because it will paralyze your motivation. It will leave you with no self esteem. And I say to you, dear friends, As you look at Scripture and see what God has to say about ourselves and our corruption and our depravity, you tell me what's more motivating. That you're pretty good and can get along with yourself and pull up your own bootstraps pretty well. Or that you were dead in your sins and transgressions and utterly corrupt. And the God who made you in grace reached down and saved you and pulled you from that deep pit, and calls you his son and his daughter, and that the old man, your old nature, is dead. Live in the newness of life. What's better for your self-esteem? This shapes your evangelism. It shapes your preaching, those of you who are pastors. Who are you preaching to? People that are pretty good and need a few tips? Or people whose natures are utterly corrupt, and they need to feed on the grace of God. Secondly, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by this fallen world. By the actions of others. When sin rears its ugly head, the next time you get on a church committee, the next time you get involved with people in your church and serve in ministry, the next time you go on a family vacation, Are you really leaving thinking that everything is going to be just right and everyone's going to act just perfect and it's going to be perfect peace and everyone's going to get along just fine? Now that would be great. We fight these battles. We we, we want to honor God in the way we relate with each other in the church, but don't be fooled. We all, in our sinful nature, are utterly corrupt. And so be, don't be surprised by your own actions or the actions of others. Be sobered is the next application. This doctrine leaves us humbled and broken and dependent. Some would say this doctrine would keep you from living the victorious Christian life. And I would say look at Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul wrestles with his own brokenness and corruption in his nature. Even as a Christian, I believe, Paul is wrestling with the old man who continues to rear his head. And how does Paul close that chapter? Who will rescue me from this body of death? He is utterly dependent and broken and humbled. That's the victorious Christian life. Be dependent. Be broken and humbled in knowing who you really are and what nature you possess in the old man. And last and final, be amazed by what God has done, is doing, and will continue to do to redeem us who are helpless, to rescue ourselves. You see, my job this morning was to be the bearer of bad news. And so I will not relieve this tension. I'll let the other gentlemen relieve this terrible tension in your souls. But let me just close by saying, don't forget. Don't forget, as we move on this morning, the deep pit from which you were lying dead. And know that God has acted to save you and to rescue you. Remember the hymn, Helpless. Look to Thee for grace. Naked, come to Thee for dress. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Our gracious God, how kind and loving You are to reveal these things to us so that we might worship You forevermore because of your saving work. For it's not because of the deeds of our own hands that we're saved, but because of your grace. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.